This is the final week of this uh, six-week series we've been working through. And this one message in particular is one that I've really been looking forward to. As today we're going to be talking about managing, uh, being stewards of God's creation. Now, this is not something that is covered too often. Uh, unless we're talking, even within stewardship series, sometimes it's not covered too often. But I think arguably it is the first and the clearest call that we have as stewards to be good stewards of all that God has created in the world around us. Now, to be honest with you, right out of the, right out of the gates here, and perhaps you can relate with this, um, like the environment, nature, being outdoors, it is not a passion for me, okay? I'm, uh, I'm not what you refer to as outdoorsy, okay? That's not something that you would use to refer to me as. It's just not necessarily one of my heart languages that I have. Now, I know lots of people who are, and and blessings on you guys for that. But it's just not necessarily a heart language I personally have. Now, a couple years ago, I was, I was kind of curious about, well, what maybe is my heart language? And so I went out and I, I found a book. You may have heard of uh, the book or the author, at least. Uh, a guy by the name of Gary Thomas, who wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. Anyone heard of that book before, Sacred Pathways? It, it, it's very similar to the five love languages. You've, heard, you've probably heard of that one before. And the five love languages is a book that talks about five different ways that people typically show and receive and, and, and express love to one another, you know, in the context of relationships. Well, Sacred Pathways takes the same concept but applies it to how we experience and how we worship God. Because we're all unique in those sorts of things as well. And, and I was kind of curious, well, what maybe was my Sacred Pathway? And, and to give you an example of some of the ones that are in there, and you might be able to relate to some of these, uh, Gary Thomas finds nine Sacred Pathways. And one, for example, is referred to as the enthusiast. Now, the enthusiast is somebody who who loves to joyfully express themselves. They're the people in the church who will, who will only clap their hands all the time, who will raise their hands. They're the ones who will, who will shout out, Amen. If you're an enthusiast, I encourage the amens because your enthusiasm, I feed off of that when I'm up here. So if you're an enthusiast, feel free to let those amens go. So that's one example. Uh, on the uh, other end of the spectrum a little bit, uh, another sacred pathway is referred to as the in, in, uh, intellects, the intellectuals. And these are people who love God with their minds. They love to open scripture and commentaries and lexicons and Bible dictionaries and, and just dig into the study of God's word. They love to learn new truths. Some other people are aesthetics. Uh, they love God in, in simplicity and solitude. So if you're the type of person or if you have a friend who enjoys going on spiritual retreats or has a very regular schedule of, of, of fasting once a week, those sorts of things, uh, they might ref be referred to as the aesthetics. They, they, they relate to God best to those types of things. And, and then there's the naturalists. There are people who, who praise God best and they have a be best experience with him when they step into a forest. And they can just feel that, that earth under their shoes. And they can see and hear and smell this nature all around them. And when they, when they go on a, on a hike and they come to a clearing and they can see that jagged mountain cliff. Or if they have the opportunity to see the sunset, a sunrise, to them it makes them feel so close to God. It just makes God so real to them that they're moved to expression in the midst of those. Now my highest score happened to be under what could be referred to as the contemplative intellectual. It's kind of a combination of two that were tied there. And basically what that means is, is I love learning and discussing theology, but I'm always drawn to a contemplative side of it, which means it's, it's, I'm never quite satisfied to just read 
about a, a theological truth, I always have to read that, but then ask the question, so what? I have to contemplate, what is the implication of that? What do I need to do differently or examine or change or, or what does that practically look like lived out? Is this the natural way that I process? And when I come to understand these things and especially get a chance to live them out, I feel very close to, to, to God's reality within my life. Now, my lowest score was the naturalist. So when I approach a message like this to speak about creation, I, I feel a bit of a disconnect at times it's just not a passion for me. Maybe there's some people here who have a bit of a disconnect with, with expressing themselves and feeling that natural uh, comfort within that. Now, I know there's people here who love to hunt and fish and camp and, and do all those sorts of things, and that's wonderful. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I'm just not outdoorsy. That means you shouldn't necessarily invite me. I would love to maybe go on those things for the purpose of a relationship, but I'm not going to enjoy the, the sap on the trees and the cold, damp mornings as we roll over in our sleeping bags. That's not necessarily what I'm going to enjoy. But I can appreciate a sunset. I, I can appreciate the mountains. When I used to travel northern BC, there wasn't a whole lot of business in Kitimat for me, but I would go to Kitimat because they have giant redwoods that were just amazing to see. And I would make that trip just to go and experience those on a regular basis. So when it comes to stewardship, though, if you remember our overarching principle throughout this whole series is that it's not about me. It's about God. And even though this is not perhaps a heart language or a passion I have, I still have a responsibility to keep in mind and to investigate what does God say in his word about our care for creation. Because just because I don't relate to it as much as some other people might doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility to take care for it and look after it. Because it's not about me, it's about God. And all of it was created by him, for him, for his glory, and yet he has entrusted it to us. So today, I'm not going to give you a top 10 list of environmental do's and don'ts. I'm not going to spend time trying to convince you of the benefits of solar panels or six-bin garbage collection systems. I'm not even going to try and convince you that carbon tax is a good idea. Because I, I'm not sure how to argue that. But, but what I do, there's an enthusiasm. There we go. <laughs> Here's what I do want to do today, though. What I do want to do today is offer you a theology of ecology. I want to offer to you a theology of ecology that answers the question, what has God revealed in his world about creation, about his created order, and our role in that? What is this theology of ecology? Now, I believe that a concern for the environment is a natural product of a biblical worldview. So if we are people who are walking according to a Christian biblical worldview, I honestly believe that an outcome of that, a byproduct of that, is a concern for the environment. Now, to understand what I mean by this theology of ecology, we need to start at the very beginning. We need to go all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where we find this account of God's majesty and sovereignty over all things. As we read the account of how God created the heavens and the earth. And we see in this, in this creation order, that there's a movement from the formless, empty realm to, to order and life and organization that God declares to be good. And in the words of this passage, beginning in Genesis 1-1, as God creates the heavens and the earth, we see that God speaks and light comes into existence. For the first time, light comes into existence which separates the day from the night. 
on the next day, we see that the sky was separated from the waters of the earth, and we have the establishment of the atmosphere around us. On the third day, we see the bodies of waters, they start to recede and dry up, and dry land emerges and vegetation upon them according each to its kind. And then on the fourth day, as, as God places the stars and the planets and, and our sun and our moon in the sky, which is used to mark the days, it's used to mark the years and the sacred times when we gather and celebrate. On the fifth day, we're told that he populated the waters and he populated the sky with all living creatures, each according to its kind. And then on the sixth day, it says animals were placed upon the land and people were created, each according to its kind as well. Now, in the events of this story, we do not just see individual acts of creation. There's actually something a little bit deeper that's happening here as well. You see, in this order of creation, we also see a clear example of God's functional concern for relationship. There's a functional concern for relationship here, which is what we would actually refer to as an ecology. Ecology would be the study of of interactions between living things and their environments. And so we see this functional concern for the ecology that God is creating as well. And here's what I mean by that. You see, on days one through three, God sets the stage for what's to come on days four through six. On day four, the celestial bodies carry out their functions in the spheres of day and night. We see on day five that the birds and the fish populate the spheres or or populate the waters in the sky. Create on day two. On day six, we see that animals and people and the inhabitants of dry land and vegetation are upon the land that was created on day three. And so when we speak about the perfection of creation, when we speak about all that was declared to be good, we're not just referring to individual elements of creation, the the, the terrains, the regions, the creatures, the vegetation, but we're also speaking about God's created order, this this ecosystem that he created that that exists in design, that exists in harmony, it exists in perfect sustainability in the way that it was ordered. And in sustainability that is so complex and that is in such a perfect balance that whether you are a Christian or not, when you study it, you have to wrestle with the question of intelligence, of intentionality that brought it into being. That is not a question that anybody can escape. Now, at each step of populating the world, God created living things according to its kind, it says. Now, those are various species. There's, there's different dogs and horses and butterflies and sparrows, each are created according to their kind. But there's one more piece of the puzzle that needs to be added, and we find that in verse 26 of Genesis 1, where it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there are some distinct differences in this final act of creation compared with all the others. There's some uniquenesses here. And the most significant being that God declares that humanity is created in his image. But what does that mean that humanity is created in the image of God? But what does that mean to be created in the image of God? Well, this word image, we see it used in Scripture a couple of ways. But most commonly, it's used to refer to, uh, to images or objects. For example, when you look at the Ten Commandments, we know one of the commandments is, Thou shall not make any image in any form uh, of anything in heaven or on earth. 
Now, in a more present-day context, when we see this word, we might use the word image in a slightly different way, speaking of a general impression of something. For example, when you look in a mirror, you see an, an image of yourself. Another application of the word might be uh, when a company or organization says, we have a public image to protect. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world in which this account was written, kings of that time would, would put up images or statues of themselves throughout the lands. And, and they would do that to mark their territories and remind people of who was in charge. They would set up these images of themselves so that those who were working the land or traveling through the land knew who owned that area, who was the king of that land. Now, we find this word is uh, used in a modern expression that actually is helpful to us a little bit today when we think of, for example, a person who's a sales rep for a company. And here's what I mean by that. Now, if, if a company sends an agent out into the field, that sales rep or that customer service representative is not the sum total of the company. They are simply a representative of that company to the public. Now, they are sent out with some responsibilities. They're, they're sent out with some duties that they have, and they have some privileges, and they have some flexibility on how they go about doing their jobs, but only what has been granted to them. You see, they have no freedom and no power to make whatever decisions they want, only the ones that have been given to them. And if you've ever gone to a store to buy something and you're asking for a deal, quite often the sales rep will go, well, I have to go ask my manager. Because there's limitations to what they can do themselves. They always have to go ask their manager. There's, there's somebody who is above them. They are image bearers, if you will, of that organization, but there's somebody who is above them. Now, if they do their job well, then the world will respond positively and have a positive view of that one who is above. If they are true to what they've been called to do, then people will, re will think well and trust the company and trust the owner. Now, apart from the Genesis 1 account, we actually see this word image used in another way. In Genesis 5.3, we see another example of it that adds further dimension that we'll pull all together in a second here. And in Genesis 5.3, we see that it, we're told that when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. He had a son in his own image, and he named him Seth. One of the most important and beautiful things that will ever happen in a person's life is having children. And in this particular case, we see here the telling of a father, Adam, having a son named Seth. And Seth would share in his father's characteristics, in his father's nature, being created in his image. And we, those of us who are parents can relate to this. Like, for example, when I think about my kids, it could be said that my kids are created in my image. And Nadine, too. She's part of that as well. But what does that mean, to be created in our image? Well, here's what it means. It means that when people see them, they recognize some resemblance of me. When they see them, there's a part of me in my children. It means that I have the ability and the opportunity to imprint my nature upon my children. For good or for bad. If there are negative characteristics and qualities about me, those can be imprinted as well. But hopefully the good ones are imprinted as well upon my children. It means also that they are representatives of my family. That when they're out in the public, they reveal my family values. They reveal my family priorities. It also means that they will always have a place of honor and dignity in my home. Because of whose they are 
They are my children. They will always have a place of honor and dignity in my home. And there will always be a special bond between us. Even if we don't honor that bond as we should, even if we neglect that bond, it doesn't change the eternal fact that they are my child. That's an eternal truth because they are created in my image. So as we pull this all together, what does it mean to say that we are created in the image of God? Well, one thing that it means is that we all have the capacity to reflect the attributes of the one we represent. We all have the opportunity to grow in and to reveal to the world the attributes of God, such as things such as love and justice and faithfulness and wisdom. We have the opportunity to be representatives of that. We also, under this idea of being a representative, have the ability to carry out the work that's been appointed to us. And when we are faithful to carry out the work appointed to us, we honor the one who has sent us. Because we have been granted special authority. As, as people created in the image of God, unique amongst all the rest of creation, we have been granted special authority and special responsibilities to go out and do the work that has been given to us. But we need to keep in mind as representatives that we are not the owner. That there is one higher. There is an owner, God himself, who built this organization from the ground up. But he has seen fit to entrust it to our well-being. And he has seen fit to entrust it to our management. Now the role and the responsibilities of a manager come in the form of a blessing. What are these responsibilities we as representatives and managers have? Well, they come in the form of a blessing as we keep reading this passage in Genesis 1. And as we get to Genesis verse 28, we see that God says this. He says, so God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, in this passage that we see, it's like a job description, if you will. And when we look at this role that we have, and if you ever start a new job, it's always a good practice to ask for a copy of the job description so you know what you're signing up for. It helps us to know what God expects. It helps to know what authority we may have. It helps to know who reports to who and who do we report to. Where do we fit within the chain of command here? And Genesis 1, verse 28 through 30, could be considered essentially a job description of managing God's creation. And there's two primary terms that come up in here that summarize that job we've been appointed to do. And the two words are subdue and rule. Now, the word subdue, it comes from the word kibash, as in um, they really put the kibash on my idea or upon my message. You know, and Scripture uses this different ways, but every time this word is used within Scripture, it's used in the sense of to bring something under control is the meaning of that word. The next one we see here is rule, which is, which is to have dominion over something, to, to govern or to rule over something or someone. And again, in every case that this word is used in Scripture, it's used in a sense of exercising authority over one that has been granted or over one that is acknowledged to have a right to have authority over. So these are rather strong commands that we are to bring everything in creation under control that we have the right and the privilege to exercise authority over everything within 
nature within all living things. But this is not the first or the last time that God speaks of this. This is not the first or the last aspect of the relationship that he shares with us. Because in Genesis 2.15, we're also told that God took the man and placed him in the garden for the purpose of working for it and caring for it. So we are to rule and subdue, and we are to work, and we are to care for it. Now, if we had time to do a full word study on what it means to, to care, we would see a couple of things. We would see that people were to work the land, not as servants, but we are to work for and care for the land with a servant heart. Not as servants, but with a servant heart. Because we have this position of authority, of ruling and subduing, which may give us the idea of kingship over the land. But remember, we're not kings. We're not the owners. So how does that fit within the nature of what we're called to do? Well, I think the best way to consider this is that we are called to rule and subdue, not as kings, but more in the sense of priests and shepherds who have authority over the realm that they are responsible for, but do so with a servant's heart. Do so with care and concern and wanting the best for what they are ruling over, subject to one who is above them. So we're to serve as priests or as shepherds over what we've been given. Now that's not necessarily a message that we will hear in the world around us. That's not even necessarily the message we'll hear in a lot of churches. There's there's actually two fallacies that, that tend to take center stage when we look at where we fit within the created order. Now, at times, we may enter into to one realm of thinking, which could be referred to as biocentrism. Now, if we head in the direction of biocentrism, this is the belief that all inhabitants of the world are created equal, that everything is at the same level of value. Now, it is true that everything has value and that God has willed and declared everything good. But we have to keep in mind that God, in his created order, has given us a higher status a higher worth than the rest of creation. Based upon two ideas. One, we see in the words that he declared it very good when humanity was created. But more importantly, he said, you alone are created in my image. We alone are image bearers of God. We alone have that responsibility to operate as priests and shepherds over the realm that he's given us responsibility to. But there's the opposite fallacy where we can head in the direction of anthropocentrism. And if we head towards anthropocentrism, we end up seeing humanity as central, most important, as the only thing with value. But that would be the opposite fallacy. Because if we do that, we end up with a view of creation that basically says creation is here for our purpose to use and abuse in any way we see fit. And when I look at Scripture, when I, when I read the Bible, I, I find Revelation contrary to both of these ideas. Because first, as we've stated, we have a mandate from God to use creation, but to care and tend for it. But secondly, creation was not made for us, remember. Creation was made for God and for his glory. And it's always going to be that way for his purposes and bring glory for God. We see this in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. In Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and he established it upon the waters. So in all areas of life, including creation care, we need to be careful that we don't exclude God from the picture. Because what happens if we do that is we move from stewardship 
in the direction, potentially, of selfish exploitation of the world around us. And so to explain what I mean, I offer the following scenario. Now, let's suppose for a second that this cold has gotten to you, and that you're just sick and tired of these temperatures, so you've booked yourself a 10-day Caribbean cruise. Okay? Now, while you're away, you're thinking, well, what am I going to do with my house? I'm gone for 10 days. So you decide to contact one of the young adults in the church and invite them to come over and, and look after your house while you're gone for those 10 days. Now, you expect that person to come and to live in your home. You, you expect them to secure your house, to, to care for your dog. You're giving them freedom to use, to use your whole home. You also have gone to the point of going to the store and stocking the refrigerator with food because you want them to have a, an enjoyable time. You want them to use all that is yours. You want them to, to take advantage of what you have placed in that home for them, including everything from, from your TV and electronics to the food in the refrigerator. Now, it's still your house. You're just going away for a while, but you've given them charge of it and to make use of whatever is in there. Now, suppose after 10 days you come back home and you find that all the food in the fridge wasn't used, but instead it just rotted. You'd probably be disappointed because it was, it was kind of a waste. You, you had bought that for a purpose. You had bought that with an intention, and, and they, just, they didn't use it the way that you had offered it to them. And so you'd be kind of disappointed by that. It was there for them to use. You wanted them to enjoy themselves. But, but suppose as well that you come home, and imagine your reaction if you find that while you were gone, they, they had like a rager. They, they just threw a big party while you're gone in your home, and your house was destroyed to the point where your, your flower beds were torn up, your furniture was broken, there's holes in the wall, and your dog is dead. Like, like how would you react to that sort of a situation? You see, in this scenario, I think you can see where we're going, that, that God is the owner of the house, and we are his blessed representatives. He has provided it. He has stocked it. He has prepared it for our use, for our enjoyment but under the understanding that we must do so with respectful knowledge that he never relinquished ownership of it. That he has entrusted it to us, but we have a responsibility to use it according to his will and according to his plans. So how have we done as being managers of creation? I don't know, how do you think we've done as a society of, of doing these types of things? Now, we, I'm sure we could debate that for a long time. We could debate whether or not we are in an ecological crisis or not. But I, I think we could all agree on one thing. I, I think it's safe to assume we could all agree that the world we live in is a distortion of God's original design. And that original created order I talked about at the very beginning of the message today, that beautiful system of perfection and perfect balance. Many aspects of that are enduring to this day. But I think we'd agree it's a distorted reality we live in compared to the original created order. And see, and it comes back to a root cause. I believe it comes back to a root cause of sin. That when Adam and Eve were tempted and ate of the forbidden fruit and sin and death entered into the world, at that time there was a loss of innocence. And God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve. And that has effects that actually endure to us to this day. And we see this in the account in Genesis 3 where, where there are two curses pronounced. One found in verse 17 when God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And then he announces that the sin of humanity will have a ripple effect throughout all of creation. And we've seen this in our own experiences. We may not connect these dots all the time, but we've seen that ripple effect throughout creation. 
as we know firsthand the struggles that we and our families and friends have as we try and live amongst this world, relationally, physically. We see the effects of, of health crises that hit people. I, I don't believe, there's some who may debate this with me, but I don't personally believe that cancer was part of God's original order. And some of these things that, that just steal life from us. So we encounter this ripple effect throughout so many areas of our own lives. But also in a deeper, in a more mysterious way, if you will, there's this connection between all aspects of creation and these curses that were put forth. You see, the second one was, was a little bit different. It was spoken against a single recipient. And it was spoken in a sense that it also includes a hope of future liberation. See, in Genesis 3.15, God curses Satan. And he states that there will be one that one day who will crush his head. And the one who will crush his head we see is Jesus Christ. And this curse constitutes the very first reference to the victory that we can know and that we share in Jesus Christ. It's the first mention of a promise of one who will come, who will crush his head and bring liberation. We read about this in Romans 5 when it says, For just as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. But this liberation from our sinful, fallen, distorted existence is actually not just for humanity. You see, in, in keeping with this mysterious connection between people and creation, Paul goes on to actually tell us in Romans 8, in, in the passage we read today a little bit of, that this liberation actually extends to all of creation. Where we read that, For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, through this vivid language that Paul uses in this passage, he describes for us that creation longs to be restored, just as we do. It longs to be restored. Therefore, just like all people, so too the physical universe is not destined for annihilation. That there's this future promise that in God's plan of redemption, it extends from not just people to all of his created order. There's a future reality coming where God restores all things. Now, why is that important? Because if, God's, if it's all going to burn anyways, if God's going to just wipe it all out anyways, then it kind of flies in the face of our responsibility to care for it and tend for it now. But if there's a future restoration, if God's plan cares enough about all of his created order to include it within the restoration of all things, then that influences what our responsibility is. If he cares enough to restore it, we should care enough to care for it. So when we consider ourselves stewards, when we consider all the things that God has entrusted to us, let's be mindful of that, that he has not forgotten, he has not abandoned, he has not condemned creation to eternal death and decay. That from the very beginning... To the very end of God's revelation, there is a sense of care and concern for everything that he declared to be good. And if God cares this much for the world, it informs what we as stewards should be doing as we care for it as well. Now here's the challenge, though. The environmental movement has shifted to, from the fringe to the mainstream in the last 25 years. There's been this move from the fringe to the mainstream. And that affects our lives in countless ways. It affects our lives in the way that we put our garbage out once a week. It affects our lives in the way that we vote when we go to the polling stations. And many Christians view anything associated with environmentalism with suspicion, and at times even with hostility. And it's easy to understand why. 
because given the actions of some extreme advocates of the environmental movement, there's this movement to assume that all Christians just subscribe to this anthropocentric worldview where we are all that matters, that we can just use and abuse to whatever extent we like. That anthropocentric worldview is not actually prevailing within Scripture. I don't think it's actually prevailing within the church, but it's, it's what we're often accused of, of that type of a position. But then you add to this that some also go a step further to espouse a biocentric worldview that gives equality to everything that exists within the world. And we wrestle with that because they'll start to use terms such as Mother Earth or the, these New Age ideas and philosophies of, of what creation is and where it came to be from and and how to, how to manage it. And many of these seem very unchristian. But I want to challenge you today to consider that the actions of a few people that were on the fringe that have made their way into the mainstream does not give us the right to divorce ourselves from the topic. That regardless of what other people have said and done out there, that doesn't change the fact that God has given us a responsibility to care for the creation that he's placed us as managers of. But we can debate what actions are needed to fulfill the stewardship mandate. But I think we owe it to the mandate to be informed and to be willing to make sacrifices for what God has entrusted to us. That a concern for our environment really is a natural byproduct of a Christian worldview. Not to be divorced from the issue, but to enter into the issue and to examine what does God say in his word about this. And that's what I'd hope to do today. That was what I hope to do today. And I, I pray that, that we would find our view of this from scripture and that we would find our view of this from from good christian witness not out of reaction to what we encounter in the world and so i challenge you to examine your daily activities i and challenge you to 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 receive this information and to consider your daily activities your personal comforts and and different levels of consumption and usage in light of what i've shared with you today that god says in his word about creation care but then to ask, also honestly seek to ask yourself you know am i honoring god with the creation that he has placed into my hands. Because I believe that if we'll do the work to investigate those things, we'll come to see that care for the environment is a natural byproduct of a biblical worldview. Because there is a theology of ecology that we can learn about. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we look around and see your majesty everywhere. God, it, it's, it seems clear that you have cared intimately enough about all of creation to bring into existence, to declare it good, to have a plan from beginning to end that the restoration of all things will be forthcoming in. So God, help us to understand our place within the midst of that. Help us to know, not to react, but to respond to your word. That we may honor you as stewards of, of the creation that you care and love for. That we would be good examples uh, to those around us, that this would be an I issue that is not divisive amongst us in the world or with us within the church, but this would be an issue in which we have another opportunity in which to reveal your truth, your love, and your care for us and for all things that you've placed into our hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.